Hi everyone and welcome to Philosophy Rekindled with our focus book, the 1920 published version of Tertium Organum by P.D. Spensky. Today we are discussing chapter 20. This is part 3. You will find the audio version of this chapter as an additional audio to this podcast and you'll also find additional information on our website philosophyrekindled.com. Today my guest is Peter Lancet, hypnotherapist, author and classic scholar. And I'm Alice Flanagan, fiction author, computer programmer and podcaster. Thanks so much for joining us and welcome Pete. So Pete, chapter 20, we're continuing on and we got about halfway through. So I'm going to let you lead into where we're starting from because you've got it marked in your book. So take it away. Okay, look, I'd just like to remind people of something that we got up to at the last one so that we can lead into where we're going because... Um, it wasn't a natural change, and it was it was one of those mind-blowing concepts that I think we should remind people of. So, Spensky says, and I apologize for reading from a book, but here, here we go. Upon the square, A squared, now that means that A is each side of a square. So, A squared is the surface area of the square. So, upon the square, A squared, let us construct a cube. The cube consists of an infinite number of squares. If you imagine an infinite number of squares placed one on top of each other, they'll form a cube. He says infinite, right, because it's just as a square consists of an infinite number of lines, and a line consists of an infinite number of points. Consequently, the number of points in the cube, A cubed, is equal to infinity to the power of infinity, to the power of infinity. In other words, infinity cubed. This expression is equal to the expression infinity squared and infinity, because infinity times infinity equals infinity. I just wanted to remind everybody of where we are. And this is the, the these new um, transfinite numbers where two things that, that seem to be different actually are the same. Yeah, because that that's really interesting, isn't it? Because you you look at the normal constructs of mathematics as we all learned at school, and we would say a square is a times a equals a squared. Well, use numbers. Stop, stop the a. If you're going to use normal mathematics, use numbers. Then people can understand it. So we've got a we've got a square with five inches or centimeters for those people that don't understand inches. God knows why you wouldn't. I understand both. But anyway, there's five five units along the length of the, the line. There are another five units along the length of another line. So five times five is 25 units. So that square is 25 units. However, each unit consists of an infinite number of points because a point, as defined mathematically, has location but no dimension. So that every Every line consists of an infinite number of units. If you segment the line, each segment consists of an infinite number of points. So you can see that the old, you know, the standard mathematics, 5 times 5, that means there's 25 units in the square. When we look at the transfinite mathematics, there's an infinite number of points in the line. So the square has an infinite number of points. When we measure, When we take that up, to become an infinite number of squares to, cre to create the cube from the square, 
The cube consists of an infinite number of points, so that there are, in effect, the same number of points in the cube as there are in the square. Whereas with finite mathematics, it would be 5 times 5 times 5. So it would be 25 times 5, there would be 125. Well, more than 125, but yeah. Actually, no, I, I, got the, I got the finite number wrong there, but you know, people know what I mean. It would be 25 times 25. Yeah. To, to get the numbers in the cube. But yeah, you get you get the picture. Whereas infinity times infinity times infinity, infinity cubed is exactly the same as simple infinity. And that's that's where we were. That's where we left off. You know, and, the, and, there, was, but the, and there was this great point that he made at the end of that paragraph. He says that it, as an infinity continues to grow, it remains at the same time unchanged. We start off with one mathematical mm. point. An infinite number of points becomes a line, and an infinite number of points in two lines becomes a square. Uh, beca can become a square. An infinite number of squares becomes the cube. In other words, it's continued to grow, but there are still only an infinite number of points in it. As it grows, it remains unchanged. That's a heck of a concept to get your head around. And that's where we. And that's where off. we left off, pretty much. And I like the fact that Aspensky, being the mathematician, he is willing to to call it that there are two types of mathematics. There's the mathematics that works only in a section of the world, three-dimensional, yeah. and then there's there's real mathematics that works in the real world outside of that. Yeah, everywhere, everywhere outside. outside of that. And that uh, and I love that I love the that point where there are the same number of points in a cube as there are in a square. Yeah. And the same number that there are in yeah. a line. Yeah. And and therefore, the axioms of mathematics appear ridiculous. And this is, and, and that in itself is an interesting thing to consider because when we look at logic and we say that's illogical or that doesn't make sense, that's turning it on its head and saying, well, the fact that it doesn't yeah. make sense probably makes it more real than the things that do make sense because we're basing that logic on something that is is not real. It's imaginary. Okay, so... So what Aspensky is saying is our mathematical axioms only work for constant magnitudes in the same time. And in my book, he talks about and the agents acting on them. So I'm not 100% sure what he means by the agents acting on them, but I'm presuming that means the same place. Uh, it's like this. You have an elastic band sitting on a table. It has the potential to stretch. But if you measure it in its unstretched, relaxed state, let's say that it's three inches long. The age... Now... At that time and in that location, that's its measurement, that's its magnitude, okay? But that only applies to that moment in time because I, as an external agent, come along and I pick up that um, elastic band. I've now moved it out of that location because I've picked it up off the table and I stretch it so that it's 10 inches long. So you measure it now and it's 10 inches long. But that only applies to this moment while I'm holding it stretched and in this location where it's up in the air off the table because I've picked it up. Yeah. That's what he's on about. Okay. So then he's, when, we, when the magnitude varies, that's you stretching the elastic band. And in those moments, they're not, it's not equal to itself anymore. It can't be equal to itself, can it, in the 3D world? But if we took that elastic band and understood that there are an infinite number of points in the three inches of its relaxed state and an infinite number of points in the 10-inch state, um, it's exactly the same, isn't it? 
irregardless of space and time. You're right. So that's the so that's the trans that's so that's the transfinite version of it. So that's that's true. Then two inches really is six in transfinite numbers. Yeah, as men have as as men have told you so many times. <laughs> boom boom, almost a joke. <laughs> Very close. It's as good as I'm going to get. Okay, so. So why is Aspensky telling us this? Because science, if we come back to this religion of science that is based only upon trying to get a square peg into a round hole. In other words, it only uses the, math the finite mathematics to come up with how it explains cause and effect in the 3D world. And it's why we are limited. It's the 3D world is limited. And yet it's faced at its very edges with the, with the looming prospect of infinity. And science, a lot of science, most of science, then ignores infinity and only mathematics works with infinity. But then mathematics says, well, yes, this, these models in mathematics explain mathematics, but we certainly can't map them to the world that we live in. Yeah. So they're conceptual. So mathematics then um, is conceptual. In other words, it, people explore it just for the sake of exploring it rather than finding a practical application of it. I think mathematicians, and certainly those working in the area of cosmology, want to be able to map, you know, transfinite uh, mathematics to the natural world, but they haven't done it yet. So when I talk about cosmology, I'm talking about people now who are using Einstein's relativity, for example, as the basis for all of their mathematical cause and effect to try to explain at the micro level of the universe cause and effect, and they're not managing it. And they come up with these fanciful notions like Big Bang, Redshift, um, meaning um, acceleration away from an object, and black holes, dark matter. They come up with all of these empty theoretical nonsensical solutions because that's the only thing that, that knits their um, equations together. And obviously people fall for it because these people are working with squiggles so that the ordinary people in the world think that they're the cleverest people on earth, where actually they're virtually making up mythological creatures to, so that their stories can, can come together. Mythological creatures, unicorn, um, same as a black hole. Might as well be, might as well mm. call them unicorns. Dark matter, that, that could be a dragon. You know, Kaspinski's really pointing out that Science it absolutely cannot, or even normal mathematics that we've been trained into understanding, cannot explain anything other than this this thin sliver of the world that mm -hmm. we see uh, broken mm -hmm. up into sequential uh, points in time and and space that that our consciousness or our understanding yep. of it has put into some logical sequence and said, oh, that's how it all works. Whereas he's saying that. You know, in in the second mathematics, the mathematics of these transfinite numbers, all magnitudes, and he's got this in capital letters, all magnitudes of which, despite their diversity, are equal among themselves. You know, it's it's exactly what you say. Infinity times infinity equals infinity. It doesn't matter how different something is when it's transfinite. It is actually the same, which is a concept that really blows your mind, doesn't yeah. it? 
Yeah, well, it gets even better, doesn't it? Because you can use finite numbers in that equation. So, for example, infinity times 2. You know, 2 is a logical um, finite number. But infinity times 2 is infinity. So, wherever infinity comes into an equation, you have to... The answer is always infinity. Yeah. Always. Infinity plus 4 is... Infinity. Yeah, you can't, you can't get away from it. There's I nothing would you can love do. to have had exams based on this because I'd only have to remember one answer. <laughs> Same here, I've won. <laughs> That's, <laughs> That's the truth. And like all of, when you when you think of like your know, differential calculus, if you ever did oh, that, I, did. Which I, I remember the name, but I'll, I'll be damned if I can remember <laughs> anything else about it. But 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 only if if infinity was somewhere in any one of those equations, I I've got the answer. I've solved that <laughs> equation. It's that easy. Can you imagine how a simpler slide rule would have looked? It just had one number on it. <laughs> it doesn't matter where you move the slide. Well, well I, actually, I, I, yeah, because it's it's just a stick with an infinite number of points. <laughs> I think I've missed uh, 12 years of my life. I'll never get back learning maths. <laughs> well, well, I, well, I, well, what's quite amusing is the fact that, and this brings it, <laughs> brings it back into the real world. Um, in the 1960s, when they were sending, you know, when we, we had the race to the moon and they were sending the, you know, the rockets up and orbital stuff and everything. I mean, re-entry the re-entry calculations were very difficult and had to be incredibly precise into narrow tolerances. Either the caps, the space capsule would bounce off the atmosphere or it would come in too steep and, and burn everybody inside. They had like a precise window. They didn't have computing power quick enough that they could, that they could use quick enough to do it. So down in the trench, which is the place, that's the name they gave to the place where these incredibly geeky mathematicians lived, Everybody worked with a slide rule. Now, um, there would have been very interesting um, space flights and re-entries if the answer was always infinity, wouldn't it? It would be. It would be. I don't see how you would have got up there, and I certainly don't see how you'd have got back. I suppose Aspensky's never saying there is no place for this. I mean, mathematics... Well, for us to have the human experience mm. in this third di three-dimensional world that we have... Um, we have to have finite mathematics because that's the only way we can actually have a meaningful experience of the third dimension alone. Exactly right. What he is saying is, though, our problem, and this is the whole point of this entire book, our problem is to believing that that is all that there is and that everything else is fanciful, whereas we are just a speck in infinity. And we are infinite ourselves, but we are a speck in the possibilities of the universe around us, other dimensions and so on and God knows what else, that we are lulled into the, a belief in an incredible illusion and we see it as, rea as reality of the universe. And there is a big mistake for us as a human species. That's the point of the book. Yeah, 100% agree with you there. So, so the next couple of paragraphs, Pete, I'd like to read out and I think it'd be great if we could just unpack them because I believe they're quite complex. I think we might have to unpack them a bit at a time as well yeah. because I, I found these two paragraphs um, a tad, shall we say, complex. Yeah, well, yeah, I, to say the uh, least, to say the e least. Even though they sound simple, 
But then I'm thinking, did you understand that? And I'm thinking, no, I didn't. We need to actually go through it. So yeah, if you read them out and then we'll start with, then we'll go through it a bit at a time. So here we go. A complete analogy is observed between the axioms of mathematics and those of logic. We've already discussed that earlier on, so I think that's a given Mm -hmm. at this point. Next bit. The logical unit, a concept, possesses all the properties of a finite and constant magnitude. So to me, a concept we've gone through in the book before is a three-dimensional construct that allows us to agree on what a, a group of things that have similarities, um, what, what makes them into that, that group. Okay, well, in which case, then let's just say that we're talking about numbers. Okay. We, we understand numbers as a, com- as concept, a concept. yes. So we're talking about mathematics and logic, so let's talk about numbers. Finite numbers are a concept. We accept that one is, is, the, is a small unit. It, it's a, let's say it's a fundamental unit of number. And then two is one and one again, and so on. So these, these are concepts that allow us to make sense of the three-dimensional universe because you couldn't build anything without an agreement on those concepts. Yeah. So you couldn't even build something as simple as a table, you know, a flat piece of wood with four legs, um, if you didn't agree on how that works. I want you to build me a table, Bill, and I want it to be three feet high, and I want it to be four feet by four feet. Well, you're not going to build it unless we all agree on it, because you you could come back and present the guy with an elephant. (laughs) What do you mean? I wanted a table. You know, so we we agree. Yeah, this is what we mean by concepts and this is how it works and they're in the finite world. But I think we should reduce it to numbers since we're talking about mathematics. So let's use the concept of number as as a good analogy for this. That's that makes sense. So so the next part is the fundamental axioms of mathematics and logic are essentially one and the same. Well, it's really a repeat of the first sentence. I know, but but he does say then that they are correct under the same conditions. And under the same conditions, they cease to be correct. There's your problem. So if you looked at your elastic example, that is an example of that. Under the same conditions, that piece of elastic sitting on the table is the same length. And then if you then stretched it, it would be different in this time and space. But it would also be the same if you looked at it from a transfinite number point of view. Its, Its length would still be infinity as it was before it was stretched, but in the finite, mm, that's right. it was two inches and now it might be six inches. Yeah, bizarre, isn't it? Mm, yes. When he, says, when he says that, you know, without any exaggeration, we may say that the fundamental axioms of mathematics and logic are correct only just as long as mathematics and logic deal with magnitudes which are artificial, conditional, and which do not exist in nature. I, my problem here... I mean, it's a problem for me because I, I'm clearly stupid. What does he mean by nature in this context? If you, if you can't answer that, then, you, then don't pretend that you can understand any of the previous two paragraphs. That's how, that's how it ends. What does he mean by nature in that sense? I have absolutely no idea. Literally, I have no idea. Are we, are we back to the example of trying to explain to the dog the weight of the sun? Like the concept. What does it matter? Because how how I don't think we are. Because um, what does he mean by nature? Plants, trees, animals. Is that what he means? I doubt it. 
Okay. Well, see. We talk. We're talking. Look, we're talking mathematics here. We're talking. We're talking mathematics and logic. Um, ah. I don't think that he's relating this to plants. I think he's talking about nature being the three D model of a, of existence, the narrow three D model of existence. Cosmologists, when they talk about nature, they're talking about the entire universe. Yeah, I'm just wondering, does he mean like it does not exist in their nature? Like it is not what their essence is in their nature? I have absolutely no idea. I literally have no idea. This, this, this to me doesn't make sense without more of an explanation of, of what he's saying. Well, let's continue then because the next sentence says... Well, yeah, yeah. The truth is that in nature... There are no finite constant magnitudes, just as also there are no concepts. So to me, that's kind of saying nature being the world of plants, animals and rocks and trees. Except that that's exactly where there are such concepts, because you've just mentioned them. Rocks, plants, trees. Those are concepts, the concept of a tree. Um, without saying that's a cherry tree, that's an apple tree. You just use the word tree, a rock. Is it an igneous rock? Is it, you know, it, is it a compressed rock? I mean, what kind of rock are you talking about? Um, those, so the, you're talking about the concept of rock, the concept of tree. I don't think he's talking about plants and animals and rocks and things. When he uses the term nature, this is a far more abstract concept than, than going back to the narrow field of plants and, and things. Okay. I don't think he's doing that at all because he's speaking mathematically and he wouldn't have gone back to that without saying it. He does He does give examples every other time. Yeah. No, I, I uh, was not thinking that, yes, you're right, when you say is a concept that I've said tree is a concept, but that's that's a human concept. I'm saying the tree itself wouldn't say necessarily I'm a tree. I don't know. I How do you know? Well, I just yeah, said do know? I don't know, but I'm, I'm wondering if that's his yeah, point. Know. Um, that in nature, I don't think he's. I don't think he's. I don't think he's thinking about trees or things like that at all. Okay, I just don't because this is mathematics. I think this is why I pointed out the word nature. Everything that just went above hangs on that, and I think by nature he means the totality of existence, the reality, the th the the thing that goes beyond this narrow three D illusion of trees and rocks and everything else i i think when he's talking about nature i think he's talking about the fundamental existence of everything that we don't see the noumenal world the noumenal world as well as this because the, the noumenal world is just an expansion of this and it's not like it's not like there's a demarcation line with checkpoint charlie and you have to present your papers to go through it's all a natural flow like getting but, over the queensland border see, at the moment <laughs> When, yeah, a bit like that. The truth is that in nature there are no finite constant magnitudes, just as that as also there are no concepts. So when so now we understand that by nature he means beyond the three D illusion. Yeah, I understand what you're saying then. And that's and and now when you see it like that, you understand why using the word nature brings us to a dead stop. Now, what I would love to know, and I, I don't know, is what, what term is used in Russian? Because I get a feeling that this is a translation problem. 
But nevertheless, I might be wrong about that too. In fact, you know, how can I possibly know? I don't speak. I can I can say good mo good morning. You know, dobre utra, dobre utra, dobre utra, krasavitsa, Alice. That's brilliant. Except it doesn't get the original text in Russian and translate that word for us. It doesn't, and it doesn't help. So you know, the fact of it is that that is a problem, and. What he goes when he goes on in the next line after he first said nature to say the truth, and that's another interesting word. The truth is that in nature there are no finite constant magnitudes, just as there are also no concepts. Okay, so now when you hear him say that, we understand that when he's saying nature, he is not talking about trees, grass, rocks, anything that you can measure. Because if you can measure it, it would have magnitude. He's not talking 3D. See where I'm going with that? No, he's not. He's talking. But he ought to say that. He ought to. Shouldn't he? Because I, I, when I'm thinking about it, is there a word for the noumenal world that encompasses this world? Like, is there, is there a word in our English language that, that describes that? I doubt it. Because, because remember, the totality of the noumenal world is outside of this what what we're talking about is something that includes this this illusion as well because the illusion exists yes we live in it we act upon it so the illusion does exist and it is part if there can actually be a part of infinity but it is part of the infinite i like concepts like the infinite now in 2001 a space odyssey the the novel that arthur c clark uh, wrote um, based on the, the movie script that he wrote with Stanley Kubrick. And I think one of the sections of the movie as well, called, uh, the last section, is called Into the Infinite. And this is where um, Dave Bowman, the, protagon the, the one remaining living human protagonist in 2001, has this trans-dimensional experience which, in which time and space are dilated and compressed and expanded. He has this experience and he called, and it's into the infinite. And I think calling it the infinite would work rather than nature because everybody, well, most people that hear the word nature, they think of, can you imagine? Oh, let's, let's spend time in nature. Well, they don't mean having the experience that Dave Bowman had at the end of 2001 A Space Odyssey. They mean going out amongst the trees and the flowers and the streams and all of this, and, and taking in the air in the forest, which is naturally relaxing, which it is, and I know I'm, I'm belittling it with my silly voice, but the <laughs> fact is that that's how most, but that is the fact that most people, when they see the course, word nature, that's, the that's what they think. <laughs> yeah, it is, that's the 3D concept of nature, but he's not talking about that, and I think if we call it just the infinite, we, are better, we have a better understanding of what, or Spensky is saying here, if we say, you know, we could find something else, but I think the infinite is a good a good way of, of describing the all-encompassing idea. If we take it back to that very first paragraph in the book where he talks about the abyss, is, is there any link to that, do you think? Well, the abyss is the, the infinite, and this is where Dave Bowman goes in 2001 A Space Odyssey. He crosses the abyss. He goes into that place where he's actually experiencing infinity and it is wonderful and at the same time same time terrifying yeah and the the experience evolves 
um, Dave Bowman into something that's transhuman, that goes beyond human. It's a, it's a state of evolution beyond where we are now. That, that's how that goes. The mere experience changes him. And at the end of the movie, he becomes something called the star child. And you see him like a fetus in this energy bubble looking down on the earth. And in the, in the book, the, the end of the book, Arthur C. Clarke has his thoughts coming out. He said, like, he looked down on the world and he didn't know what to do, but he would think of something. It was, it's amazing. Uh, but, you know, the infinite would, is, a, is a far better description than using the word nature because we use the word nature constantly in everyday speech, which for, and for us, it means something yeah. else. Well, it certainly confused me when I read it. It, confu it confused me, be honest with you. That's why I wanted to spend time on that two paragraphs because, and it's that, and I realize, and it's literally just now as we're discussing it, I realize it's the word nature that's giving me the problem. And I think actually the next uh, paragraph will will back us up on that. Mm. Go on then, take take us into it. Okay, so when we we substitute the word nature for the infinite, I think that that uh, paragraph in the bit makes a lot more sense. So I'm just going to quickly read it just to, to recap. Without any exaggeration, we may say that the fundamental axioms of mathematics and of logic are correct only just so long as mathematics and logic deal with magnitudes which are artificial, conditional, and which do not exist in the infinite. And I've just substituted nature for the infinite. The truth is that in the infinite... There are no finite constant magnitudes, just as there are no concepts. I think actually that makes more sense now when you put that, that uh, concept of the infinite in instead of nature. Okay, so let's continue. Spensky then goes to talk about, well, how do we reconcile the idea of the absence of constant magnitudes with the idea of an immobile universe? So we've, we've already talked about the the outside of the three-dimensional is immobile it's and we we sequentially put moments of time into it to to navigate, uh, navigate our 3d mm. so how does that work when we're saying that there there isn't anything constant so it's it's basically opposite that that's such an interesting line so and he's put in italics in my book an immobile universe so Let's 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 see what what is irreconcilable there. Constant magnitudes within a mobile universe. The absence of constant magnitudes. Now, what does he mean by the absence of constant magnitudes? Motion. Well, it's not motion because that's a three D. It's change. But it's change. Change. Yeah. Any degree of change, whether it's entropy, you know. Um, a piece of wood lying on the floor that over time rots and changes. Any change. It, ca it can be motion. It can be stretching an elastic band. You know, the absence of you know, constant magnitudes, i.e. a magnitude that can be measured at any one point in time and in any location and under other conditions. Um, the absence of that, you know, with a immobile universe. And it and he does explain this to us. He says, at first mm. sight, one appears to contradict the other. In other words, change and no change. Yeah. yeah, change and no change. But in reality, this contradiction does not exist. Not this, in italics, it's yeah. not this universe is immobile, but the greater universe, the world of four dimensions, of which we oh. know that oh, well. 
I've got to stop mm -hmm. you. I'm sorry, I've got Why? to. Because mine doesn't say four dimensions, which is very limiting. Mine says many dimensions. He's changed it, which is great. Because when because I read that, limitless. I four dimensions. What about the other dimensions? Yeah, so he's... His, his edits have done done him service again. Can you read the Not This Universe sure. from... Yeah. Not This Universe is immobile, but the greater universe, the world of many dimensions, of which we know that perpetually moving section called the three-dimensional infinite sphere. So, in other words, we only know this perpetually moving three-dimensional sphere, but that that is a speck within these innumerable Infinite. I, I hesitated to say that, but yes. <laughs> I never hesitate. <laughs> no, but yeah, but you know, that's, that's what he's saying, you know. Moreover, the very concepts of motion and immobility need revision because, as we usually understand them with the aid of our reason, they do not correspond to reality. So, in other words, we've got to take a look at how we, we are um, attributing meaning to words uh, he's he's hinting at the idea without saying it straight out again that language limits us just just as much as everything else and in fact it's language that limits our our understanding of reality because language is fixed on 3d concepts yeah what the very thing of a concept is three-dimensional yeah i didn't exactly. actually have that is that, is that the next sentence after three-dimensional infinite sphere that you just read? Moreover, the very concepts of motion and immobility need revision because as we usually understand them with the aid of our reason, they do not correspond to reality. You don't have that bit. No, I don't. Ah, well, he's, he, yeah, right. So he's he has made changes because people have said that they don't understand that bit. So he's put that in, which is great. They obviously must have understood in nature because he hasn't revised that in our, in our both versions. I think that people understand when they get past, you know, to the second um, mention of nature, where he says the truth is that in nature there are no finite constant magnitudes, just as there are also no concepts. He's come to an understanding that people would say, ah, by nature, he doesn't mean the 3D world of trees and flowers mm. and streams and yeah. pretty birds flying and all the rest of it, yeah? Yeah. So he, it then goes on to say that, in essence, we, you know, that we've already analysed the idea of motion being from our imperfection of our space sense. So yeah. the concept it, even of, of mobile and, and immobile is is all to do with our unpacking of the 3D world with the senses we've got in our consciousness. Yeah, well, he, I, I, yeah, because motion, he, as he explained it, is a concept of time. It, it, it only comes about as time. We'd have to go back previous chapters, and I, I have no intention of doing that in this chapter, but he did, he did demonstrate that it's time that gives us the illusion of motion. Mm, that's right. And so, yes, in the infinite, no motion. No, no time, motion. but everything changes and is the same all at the same time. I know. <laughs> okay, so the next next part of the chapter that Spensky talks about I thought was really interesting. He talks about the base sense that we have in the three-dimensional world of our, even our own body. So we look at our body and we say it changes from birth to death. But what he's saying is that's because we're looking through that narrow slit again at the three-dimensional world and in reality... In the fourth dimensional world, our body 
is existing and not it's it's immo- it's immovable it's it's always is and always was and he actually says in my book were our space sense more perfect in relation to any given object say to the body of a given man we could embrace all of his life in time from birth to death in other words if we could see outside the 3d reality then we'd be able to see not that we do see it but we would be able to but we can't he's saying that we can't see it right yep spensky layers this beautifully so that everybody can understand it he really does let's layer that's why because the way that i was listening to you then it sounded like you were assuming uh, with the words that you used it sounded like you were saying that that's what we did do that we embraced the life you know from birth to death he's saying that we can't he's saying that if we if we did have an an extrasensory way of looking at things we would see the entire life encapsulated in one moment and one location we wouldn't see this constant change of growing old and going overseas and coming back we wouldn't see any of that we would see it as this unimaginable one thing were our space sense more perfect in relation to any given object you see what he's saying is it isn't more perfect we are stuck in this imperfect three dimensions so we don't see that thing do you get what i'm mm. going where i'm going with it yeah i do and so really that's the the concept of seeing through the narrow slit as opposed to seeing mm. the real numinous within the limits of this embrace that life would be for us a constant magnitude because in other words if we were outside 3d we would see the entire life of a man as one constant immobile not moving never changing i wish from this point of view of you and perhaps a lot of other people he hadn't used the life of a man as the example you wouldn't be having all of this thing because now you're relating what he's saying to you and i think a lot of people do he shouldn't have done it what he could have done is used something that decays i use the idea of a log and you would not then be bringing your own personal experience into it and what how it might affect you if he was just talking about something far more abstract that you don't relate yourself to that would have explained a lot better actually yeah if we looked at the life of a log and uh yeah yeah, a log a log it's a branch a branch has fallen from a tree a branch has fallen from a tree it lies there now if we could embrace the decay of that log on the forest floor from a point of view outside the 3D experience that we do have, we would see that change in its condition as one constant magnitude. We wouldn't see any change or difference in it. That's that's far better. And now we don't relate it to ourselves. We don't think he's talking about me. So when he says, but now at every given moment of it, it is for us not a constant but a variable magnitude, which is just what you've explained. It starts as a log and then it gets older and starts decaying, etc. Then mm. he goes on to say that which we call, and I'm going to replace the, the word a body with a log, that yeah. which we call yeah. a log does not exist in reality. It is only the section of that four-dimensional log that we never see. Yeah. So, so we're we're only looking at a, that that slim section of the log, and we are. It's like we are looking at the log through a narrow slit. Yeah, that that is that the narrow slit bit 
makes a lot of sense to me because I can imagine the log lying on the other side and I'm just looking through a slit and seeing a bit of the log. Mm. Um, yeah. It's a very 3D concept, but it kind of... I know it me. is. I know it yeah. is, but that's the problem. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah. I, I do think that, that that is a good one. It does show that we're limited in what we see. I, you know, to me, that's the same as the shining the torch yes. analogy that he said. In in a dark room, you know, we have a, a torch with a narrow beam, and we point it at this corner, and for a, and for a while we see what's in that corner, completely oblivious to everything else in the, in the room. Well, if we if we take that analogy and say we had a row of pallets, and and each pallet was different, and then we shone our torch along them, we would think the pallet was changing. Yeah, that's true. But in and fact, there there's a, <laughs> there's a, they're all there. So yeah. then Aspensky continues, he says, this is not the world, but merely that which we see of the world. The three-dimensional world is the four-dimensional world observed through the narrow slit of our senses. Um, well, that I think that's clear enough. Therefore, mm. all magnitudes which we regard as such in the three-dimensional world are not real magnitudes, but merely artificially assumed. So he's, he's backing yep. up the concept that mm-hmm. it's, it's not, not real. They do not exist really in the same way that the present does not exist really. And that's bringing back that concept of the present is only the past moving into the future. It's, it's, there is never a point called the present. It is the changing of the past into the future that you talked about before. That's right. So he says, by the present, we designate the transition from the future into the past, but the transition has no extension. Therefore, the present does not exist, only the future and the past. I'd, I'd have to say at this point, um, a lot of people have got a lot of really, really valuable things from the the book by Eckhart Tully, The Power of Now. Mm. Okay. and the power of now and this idea of live in the moment, live in the now, this, uh, which is like the basis of the, the current fashion of mindfulness, as though that's something new. And then some very attractive young woman on Facebook can teach you mindfulness. I'm sure they always use these attractive young women to sell these bloody courses. And, but nevertheless, um, it's fake as anything because... Logically, mathematically, conceptually, the present moment cannot exist. So how the hell do you live in that? It is, it is valuable to enjoy what we call the present moment. But from the point of view of this book, the reality is that there is no now. There is this immeasurable, in other words, infinitely small, therefore, from our point of view, not existing, point at which the past becomes the future, and the future becomes the past. But there is never a current moment, and there can't be. There can't be, How would you no. define it? How would you define that in terms of time? In the 3D assumption of the world, there is no now. Because as soon as you observe it, it's gone. <laughs> it's past. And I, and, and, I, I, and I should point out to fans of Eckhart Tolle that in no way is he describing the now that he wants you to live in as being this mathematical idea of non-existence. He's not telling you to go and sit on a mountain, achieve Sartori and then Nirvana and disappear from 3D existence altogether. He's not telling you that. He's telling you to enjoy what you call the present moment. Whether, whether Eckhart Tolle understands mathematically that there is no now, 
Um, I don't know. He gives great advice for living, for living a happy and wonderful existence. But but the power of now is a false a, a false concept. You're not living in the now because the now you cannot experience in the 3D world. And he is limited by three-dimensional language so he's doing the best he can by using that word and i think it's a brilliant book as you do too as eckhart eckhart tolle is a great counselor he is a great person for giving you models on which you you, know, you can base a happy life you can yeah. have a, a much more enjoyable fruitful existence but uspensky is million miles divorced from eckhart tolle and i only brought it up because People think that they do live in the now, and I'd like to point out that you better explain to me how how that can be mathematically. When we're talking about the present moment in this book, it's not the, the present moment that people assume that they know. And I brought Eckhart Tolle in because because his book is called The Power of Now, and we shouldn't try to, to pretend to people that... Eckhart Tolle is asking you to achieve the impossible. He's not. He's giving. He's actually giving you the most wonderful model for living a happy and valuable life. And and it wouldn't have the same ring. The power of the past moving into the future. That that that, that is unobtainable because it doesn't exist. The transition of the past into the future. The power thereof. Yeah, the power. Yeah, the, the, yeah, the power of yeah, the power of the transition of the past to the future. <laughs> live in the live in the transition of the power of. The... Yeah, I think forget translating from Russian. Translate from three dimensional language. It's too hard. And there is the problem with language when we're trying to discuss this stuff, and this is why it's so difficult, and this is why we we spend so much time trying to get our heads around these concepts. I, I, you know, con concept is now a word that rather like consciousness, I don't like using. Well, simply because it's used in a million different different ways. And and look what happened to you earlier on. You got yeah. hung up on it. I and, did. And I think a lot of I think it's easy to do. So you know. Anyway, here we go. So, so where were we? You you're so, the boss. Where we, okay. where are we again? So, the next the next point that Spensky then makes is he, he in essence says that there is no three-dimensional world uh, without the four-dimensional and I'll, I'll read what it says thus constant magnitudes in the three-dimensional world are only abstractions just as motion in the three-dimensional world is in substance an abstraction in the three-dimensional world there is no change no motion in order to think motion, we already need the four-dimensional world. That's that's interesting, isn't it, that he's saying that in our three-dimensional world there's no change and no motion, yet we do observe it. But I think what he's saying is not without the four-dimensional world. It's how we are mm. interpreting the four-dimensional world that brings in the motion and the change. Well, it's our lack of um, embracing the four-dimensional world that makes it appear as though there's change. This is the fourth dimension, and dimensions beyond that have an impact on the third dimension, is what he's saying. And it's because we have this assumption of time and of magnitude, of certain magnitude um, based on time and space, that the wherever the fourth dimension intrudes, it, in, it, it, it forces us into a corner of believing in change and motion and time. 
we wouldn't have those things if the fourth dimension wasn't intruding. He did explain this in previous chapters. I think I've just got what he's saying, that the three-dimensional world is a virtual reality of the four-dimensional mm. world. Yeah. So if that makes sense, then it doesn't exist. It's, it's only our observation of the fourth-dimensional world that we call the three-dimensional world. We can take, yeah, we, well, we can take it even further that the three-dimensional world does exist, but we, we, we ascribe to it a reality that it doesn't actually hold. The truth mm -hmm. of the three-dimensional world is somewhat different um, from the way that we interpret it, and we interpret it as reality, but that's something else. There's something else going on there. Mm. We could agree, we could agree um, to see things the certain way, so that whenever we look up at, at a cloudless sky, we say that's a blue sky. And we all know what we mean by a blue sky. We agree, we agree on that. When we say that's a coffee table, actually that's a terrible analogy because to some people it might not be a coffee table, but a chair is a chair. You might think of a different chair. If I say the word chair, one person might think of a cosy armchair, somebody might think of a wooden seat, but we all grasp the concept of a chair as something that supports your backside so that you don't have to <laughs> waste, waste the musculature of your legs by standing. <laughs> well, here's the next thing that Svensky points out. He says, the three-dimensional world does not exist in reality or it exists only during one ideal moment. In the next ideal moment, there already exists another three-dimensional world. So it sounds to me like the fact that we are looking through the narrow slit of the four dimensions and we just see in this moment what we make up as the three-dimensional world. In the next moment, we're making up what we see as the three-dimensional world. So there's like this infinite number of three-dimensional worlds. You're giving me the look, Pete? Like I've missed the mark. I don't know whether you've missed the mark. I just don't get that. If we look at the, the, the movie screen analogy and we, we see on the projection the, the movie, then we make up that's the three-dimensional world. We'd say that's the movie is, is our reality. Mm -hmm. Then if the person in the, in the screen room changes the reel and puts on another movie, then we see a new reality. So the num So yeah. every time that reel is changed which is us looking at the world, the four-dimensional and interpreting if, it, it's a new world. If that, hap if that happened, uh, you'd be in a mental asylum. Why, why would we need to change the reel? Why wouldn't we need, need to just like advance the film that's being shown to the next frame and then the next frame? Well, that's, next yeah, frame? okay, that's, that's a good analogy then. So It's like a flickering book. You've seen them where you flick the pages and it looks as though somebody's moving. Because yes, it's a different yes. drawing. It's like that. So it's a new drawing each time, but you see it as a continuum. Mm -hmm. that's, yeah, that's a good analogy. And that's what I think he's saying. that's the same as the film. Yeah, that's what yeah. I think he's saying. But, but I, I, I think it's interesting that he's, he's making the distinction that this three-dimensional experience isn't really a continuum. It's a section upon section upon section, one after the mm. other in a sequence. And he did start the chapter talking about sequential. Mm. I do think that it's, it's, I do think it's very, very interesting that Spensky clearly understood that if he'd started putting analogies in here, it would take people right off the track. And so he hasn't. Because he does use them all the way through this book. He knows that here, if he goes into analogy, people are going to get hung up on the analogy and not on what he's actually saying. 
And I think that's why he doesn't doesn't give us one. Hmm. Still, too late now. We've given analogies. Well, we have, but I I understand what he's saying. But it, but what I'm interested in is why does he make the distinction to say that that three dimensional world is fresh, every you know infinitely a fresh version of the world? Because it's fake. That that that's the proof that it's fake. That whatever you see now and you take to be reality is fake because time is fake. So what you perceive as change literally has to be another frame of the film or another page in the book that's being flicked open. What you uh, what we see as a continuum isn't a continuum. It's not continuous. We imagine a real a reality of continuous change, you know, analog change, um, but that's just not what happens. I see what you're saying. Yeah, we, I agree. We with change. You there. We're changing the focus of the slit from, from one image to another image to another. Otherwise, we we would be stuck in one frame, rather like when Zoom or Squadcast gets frozen. Mm. So he brings maths back into it after that and says, "Thank goodness." Yeah, and, and I think this is kind of his way of an example. Therefore, the magnitude a in the fo- in the following moment is already not a, but b. But B. Yeah. In the next C, and so forth to infinity, it is equal to itself in one ideal moment only. Okay, now let me come back. Okay, mathematics. A equals A. A does not equal B. So when we've moved from the moment of of looking at A, moment A, when we move on to looking at moment B, we're no longer looking at moment A. A no longer exists. Yep. For us, for us, and that and that's how we go through our entire three D lives. We think the past doesn't exist, but it's still there. And a reel of film is, you know, or the flickering book are a great example. As the reel of film unwinds, as you know, as it's getting shown, you know, projecting on the screen, the frames that have gone before don't cease to exist. They're still there on the reel. That's, yeah, we're that's not true. we're no longer focused on them so you know this but it's quite clear that frame a is not frame b or c and so on yeah. we think it is we think it's all part of one continuous thing but it isn't is it we all think they're connected but actually mm, but they're, they're not. separate they're a series of still photos yes yes they that's are all the, that's all that that's all that's all that a movie film is it's a series of still photos and so what Aspensky's saying there is each frame is a new third dimension. Yeah, it's a new slice of, of, of three-dimensionality that we make the erroneous um, connection to. We, we tell ourselves that it's an analogue, that there is no separation. And this is the illusion of time that does that. If, yes. we, if we did not have the illusion of time, then we wouldn't... We wouldn't believe that. God knows how we would exist and have a human experience that we know to be a human experience. Um, but we certainly wouldn't think that, the, that you know, section A uh, was different to section B. And the freeing thing of, of looking at it that way says that we are not stuck with what we're told is reality. So things that we think are impossible are suddenly possible. Not just possible, probable. In fact, 
in fact exactly the truth you know the things that we think are not possible turn out to be the truth and it explains why miracles happen because they're outside of this sequence that we're expecting mm. so a equals a but only in the context of the uh, that one ideal moment if we move to another moment i.e along the timeline then even though we still think we're looking at a it's not it's no longer a because it's changed in time so none of the none of the constants are prevalent in other words because the moment is a different moment the mo the the a that we see in the second moment can't be the a that we were looking at in the previous moment it cannot equal itself and that because the moment has to be taken into account the moment is one of the qualities and attributes of a yes and without without that moment it's not a yeah so yeah so putting putting it together in in moment number one we're looking at a in moment number two we could still be looking at a and from the visual sense it hasn't changed but one of its attributes has changed it's no longer a1 it's now a2 so we've moved we're looking at it again from a different perspective it can a2 cannot equal a1 did you get that mathematically yes to us it looks the same but it's not the same because time has moved so we're looking at a we think we know what a is but it's in that one ideal moment the moment number one by the time moment number two arrives which is we won't talk about that we'll let, let's just use it keep it simple the, the by the time number two arrives a is still in the same place we'd still think we were looking at a in exactly the same way but it's changed already because it now has the attribute of moment two it becomes a2 a2 cannot in the three-dimensional world that we look at equal a1 so could we bring that into the log example and say we are looking at log in moment a you, you can yeah you can do it you can do it with anything you like and then we're looking at the log in moment b and we're still calling it the log yeah but it's, that's exactly but it's it. actually not the log that we saw oh, it's, in not log a. A. it's not it's not log a yeah, it's, it's not log a it's log a1 we're calling it the yeah. log and that's why why uh, potentially we may see change in decay or it may look the same for a ah, long yeah. time but but it's it's the one two three four illusion and you know going on into infinity it's that illusion that makes us think that we're looking at the same log yes it's time basically what's giving us the problem is time everything is related to the illusion of time if we didn't have the illusion of time we would already be looking at it through um, eyes that are not three-dimensional mm -hmm. we would yep. already be in some, we would already be looking at it somewhere else time is the critical factor here that, that makes that makes us um, believe in the illusion yes once you believe in the illusion of time then you believe in other illusions it's, it's time time is the problem but also the the blessing that allows us to have the three-dimensional experience in the first place. Mm -hmm. So that's why Spensky has italicized in time when he writes in time, i.e. in the relation yeah. to variable magnitudes, from the standpoint of the ideal moment, they are untrue. They are untrue, yeah. Wow. Well, we're nearly to the end. 
it's one one big concept after another. I'm drained. Just a little bit more, just a few more moments of time. I, I'm going to have a lie, I'm going to have to have a lie down in a darkened room after this one. I, I think I've got a fresh Pete to talk to. <laughs> it's not Pete ah, A. It's Pete A one. A one and A two and A two. Well, on that note, I'm going to leave it there for this week and we'll finish Chapter 20 next week. Thanks so much, Pete, for joining me today and thanks everyone else for listening.